three, two, one, action. Drinking some uh, coffee. Bizora Kifa. Now, I'm going to be starting out tonight talking about docetism. You know what? I'm going to hold off on that. I'm going to hold off on that because, yeah, I want to write that into this book. I'm always looking for more passages of docetism and all that it implies. But in review, okay, if you need to know, because I, I talk about it a little bit here. It was a very, very popular belief in the first and second century, probably the third, fourth, so on and so forth, according to official history. Uh, a lot of people will just throw it off to this Gnostic idea, just so, just to discard it. And the, the idea of docetism is that Yahushua HaMashiach, when he came down, when he was uh, uh, manifested into a, a human being, and he was you know, born as a, as a baby, that this is, you know, this is the creator of heaven and earth we're talking about. And they were really wrestling with how do you contain uh, the creator into human flesh, right? Now, with, if you go to the mainstream evangelical church, they have made it heretical to ever ask these questions. I mean, you, you have to be, he's like, no, he's a hundred, you know, the Trinity, he's a hundred percent God, hundred percent man, that you just leave it at that. And some of the docetists would say, well, what if some of the physical, physicality was a bit of an illusion. So within docetism, some, a lot of the early literature within Christianity, they would talk about seeing visions of Yahushua HaMashiach coming to them as a beautiful young boy. Or sometimes they would say they would see him as an old man. I was just reading today in the Acts of Kepha, which is not the Gospel of Kepha, right? It, it's a different book. But there's these, these blind women in the room with Peter with Kifa, and they all have this vision of Yahushua HaMashiach at the same time. And Kifa asks, he says, what was it like for you? And one woman says that he was an old man. Another says he was a beautiful, like youthful man. Another says he was a, a, a young child. And this idea that, you know, that he cannot be contained within just physicality. All right. So here we go. Let's get into this. Bezora Kifa 13. And Adonai cried out saying, my power, my power, you have forsaken me. And when he had said it, he was taken up. And in that hour, the veil of the temple of Yerushalayim was rent in two. And there it is, folks, the supposed docetism I had earlier warned you about. Triggered. Now, because a lot of people will say, don't read this book of the Gospel of Peter, because it's it's a docetic book, right? It's, it's Gnostic. That was it right there. You just read the passage that has all the red flags and the bells and the whistles going off. They, they don't want, you, they say, it's all a distraction. They say they don't want you to read it because of this. We've already covered why they don't want you to read it because it tells you who actually crucified uh, Mashiach and it wasn't the Romans. Anyways, you will undoubtedly notice the transition. It is immediately after Yahushua's complaint, specifically in that his power has been stripped away that he is taken up, potentially indicating that his body was of no more use to him. So, okay, I'll just keep reading here. I'll fight the temptation to com uh, comment further. Some have suggested that Kiva is implying Yahushua went directly to the Father's presence in heaven. They do so to push the docetism accusations when, in fact, a careful reading of the text suggests the complete opposite to be true. He didn't immediately go to heaven. No, he went to Sheol. And we won't get to that till next week or the week after, but the Gospel of Peter does talk about that. Kepha even gives testimony to his kingdom's conquest of the underworld, but now we are get, getting ahead of ourselves, one thing at a time. 
to put this in slightly different terms, the suggestion by our critics is that Mashiach did not die. Uh-oh. This when grouped with Kifa's prior claim that he, quote, held his peace as though feeling no pain, has led many to accuse the tax of the dreaded D-word. Though, as I've already explained, it all depends upon a certain point of view. He died, yes. But then again, there are two deaths according to scripture, and he couldn't possibly have succumbed to the second one because death itself was a flesh issue and could not contain his sinless nefesh, you see. Not contradictory at all. It all ties in with his conquest of Sheol, a narrative which will require investigation at another hour. Yahusha had made known in Matif Yahu 10.28 that Elohim alone is capable of killing the nefesh. We looked at that passage already, if you recall in past studies on this book. Sure, the Yahudim may have crucified his body as an offering to their father, the serpent, and that is no small crime. But then why is it so controversial to conclude that they were incapable of murdering his nefesh? To do so would be committing the impossible according to the rules proposed to us. Yahusha may have breathed his last, but that does not mean he was thrown into the lake of fire or that he ceased to exist, LOL, which is precisely why the quote-unquote laughing Yahusha responded to their ignorance in the Apocalypse of Kifa. That's another book we looked at in the past in this study, if you recall. That same ignorance will be further explored when we get around to exploring his journey to Sheol. The power that he had lost was, by all indications, the connection between his mortal fleshly body and the divine nefesh. But even that was only temporary. The resurrection had already begun its work. More precisely, he had already been resurrected, as the Gnostics would say. This comes from the Gospel of Philip 21. Those who say that Adonai first died and then was resurrected are wrong, for he was first resurrected and then die. If someone has not first been resurrected, then they can only die. If they have already been resurrected, they are alive, as Elohim is alive. Philip is describing a central tenet of the Gnosis experience, by the way. It's somewhat ironic that Baptists have a particular disdain towards the Gnostics, but then go around proclaiming their very own proposed Gnosis when insisting that they've been quote-unquote, born again. They will even question you on your own born-again status as a point of testimony and then ask you for a Gregorian calendar date to mark the occasion, which is not so far removed from what is being claimed here by the Gnostics. They said you're born again first, and the Baptists say the same thing. Yahushua was, was taken up in such a way that his resurrection had happened first. The date of his fleshly body was only secondary to that. Does that make sense to everyone? Uh, I have shown in the past, and I will not tonight, but later on in the study, that Yahushua HaMashiach, he resurrected everyone into heaven from Sheol, according to multiple sources, and he was a part of that. And then only afterwards, he went back for his physical body. A lot of people, according to books like uh, the uh, Gospel of Nicodemus, uh, Gospel of uh, Barnabas and others, uh, not the Gospel of Barnabas, the Gospel of Bartholomew, you know, the people were resurrected spiritually from Sheol directly to heaven. They didn't come out of the tombs. Anyways, in this way, Mashiach invites us to follow him by awakening in this life to what does not die. All right. The, 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 hopefully we will not partake in the second death, the one that happened immediately to Adam 
after his transgression that he spiritually died from within and had to be reborn again. There's much I want to say on the subject and I'm having a terrible time organizing my thoughts. I think what ought to be done before getting too far into verse 13 is that we look at how closely Kepha parallels the synoptic gospels on this point. That is undoubtedly the best way to deal with the, uh, the criticism being thrust upon the Bezorah. My hope in all of this is that someone somewhere in our motionless realm ceases from pointing a finger and screaming, stranger danger, whenever Bezorah Kepha is brought into the conversation. Because really, this is one of those books that it comes up and people get this icky feeling like, oh, I'm not supposed to read that one. Even if you are not convinced as to its legitimacy, of course, and I am, perhaps you will in the very least learn something, which is always nice. And so without further ado, here is Marcus and Matthew Yahoo. So we're going to read from Bezorah, Marcus, the Gospel of Mark first. You can see the uh, the street look the chapter and verse there, the street corner location, 1534 through 38. And he says, and at the ninth hour, Yahushua cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama azaftani, which is being interpreted, Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he calls Eliyahu, that would be Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him to drink, saying, let alone, let us see whether Eliyahu will come to take him down. And Yahushua cried with a loud voice and gave up his ruach. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to the bottom. And then we see in Bezorah, Matithyahu, the Gospel of Matthew 27. It says, at about the ninth hour, Yahushua cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama azaftani. That is to say, Eli, Eli, why have you forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calls for Eliyahu, again, Elijah. And straightway, one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let be, let's see whether Eliyahu will come to save him. Yahushua, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up his ruach. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the Kodashim, which slept, arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Bezorah, Matthew, Yahu, 27, 46-53. Now, one of the things I will not be talking about in this document is that the resurrection of the dead is not cookie-cutter. You know, we all have this picture about how, you know, everyone has to be physically resurrected from their grave. And... I don't know. I mean, we, we see, like, if you look at the Gospel of Nicodemus, these people right here, they were resurrected out of Sheol through the grave, and they went on, and I think eventually they went to heaven. But then there was all these other people going all the way back to Adam and uh, Seth and Moshe and others. They were just taken up to heaven. They didn't come out of the grave. So, you know, it's, it's just not a cookie-cutter uh, case as according to the canonical gospels, uh, as people make out. Of the three, Marcus is the simplest narrative, giving us a bare bones account, whereas Matithyahu adds the most enticing details as no other account speaks of the Kodashim rising from the grapes, at least not canonical. Hopefully you can recognize the three main points laid out by Kepha. They are all present and accounted for, and in the same order. First, Mashiach lamented a line with a loud voice. Secondly, he gave up his ruach. And then finally, the veil of the temple was torn in two. Sure, the synoptic gospels may claim Eli, Eli, as Yahushua's cry rather than my power, my power. And in fact, they fall in line with Psalm 22, 
But I'm here to tell you they are one and the same. Elihim was his unity and power. He may have even said both lines for all I know. Or perhaps the witness, witnesses standing around all heard it differently. Who was to say they didn't? The Hebrew word for strength, power, or might is, uh, you can see there, I guess it's koach. I can't pronounce that, K-O-A-C-H. Even if the synoptic gospels overlook the word, the response of countless witnesses implies that he did. The fact that they thought he was calling upon Eliyahu rather than Elihim highly suggests a mantle of authority being taken away from him. But then look at how the line is phrased in the book of the Nazarene. It says, then Yahushua began to speak the words of David and later said, my Elihim, do not let your power drain away from me. That comes from 20 uh, verse 99. The writer of Nazarene, who I'm, whom I highly suspect is Aristobulus of Britannia, all indications say so, he would be the father-in-law of Kepha. So connected with this book here, uh, Bizarre Kepha. As I say, also happened to be Kepha's father-in-law. He was one of the 70 disciples mentioned in Lucas 10, 1 through 24, was given mention in Paul's epistle to the Romans, and as his name implies, was a bishop of Britain. Well, in one stunning line, Aristobulus blends what we have read in Bizarre Kepha with the synoptic accounts. Eli and power are both accounted for. Regarding this power, the most picturesque example that I can think of derives once more from the book of the Nazarene. So follow along. This comes from chapter 3, verse 1. Coming from the wilderness, Yahushua still retained the full power of the Ruach HaKodesh, having it on a trusty ship from Elohim. He would not use it unworthily. At night, it shone around him like a pale blue haze. And though many have it, never has another manifested it in such strength. My suggestion to you is that the pale blue haze is the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, which left him. I will, uh, really, the clothing of the Ruach HaKodesh. I will be sure to talk about the importance of the anointing color again when dealing with his bodily re resurrection, because there is a science to it. And believe me, it resurfaces. And so I will go even further and claim for clarification purposes that his power was not in himself so much as in his unity with the Ruach HaKodesh and in his Heavenly Father. The compound unity of oneness embodied by the Hebrew word ikad and finally had finally been severed, as indicated by the three-hour manifestation of spiritual darkness, which may be also an indication kind of spiritually of the outer darkness. I am referring to his prayer in Bezora Yochanan 1721, wherein he requested the following: that all may be one, the word is ikad, as you, Avi, are in me and I in you. This comes from Bizarro Canon 1721. Trinitarians employ this passage as evidence of their doctrine, but that can't be since Yahushua is requesting that the same oneness which he shares with the Father be experienced by the set apart. But then, while hung from the tree, that element of his day-to-day -day spiritual reality had been stripped away from him. The Trinitarians will further claim the Trinity was severed as if the Most High took a cleaver out on his own body like some sort of heavenly eunuch only to reattach his parts again, when what really happened is as sim simple as saying Yahushua's ikad was a mantle temporarily removed from Mashiach, just as assuredly as Adam's ikad was removed when being expelled from paradise. But more on that later. To quote from Paul, my old sparring partner, 
For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of Elohim in him. That comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Criticism abounds whenever I bring up Paul. At present, I'm thinking a third of my readership is anti-Paul, preferring Mashiach's words only, whereas the other two-thirds are skeptical as hell. I'm bringing this up because I can't quote from the guy without feeling the simultaneous sigh of a thousand readers all across the motionless realm. And yes, your wind is blowing my way now. Thanks for brushing. I guess I can't blame you. Many of you know that I too was anti-Paul for a spiel. It came as a result of an investigation. Then I reverted back away from the anti-position to being skeptical as hell as part of that same investigation, though now I have found my shalom in giving him the benefit of the doubt. Paul is free to convey to us the mysteries of heaven from his angle, just as, just as assuredly as Kepha is in his Bezorah and the Gnostics in theirs, so long, it is not, so long as it is not the Torah being chucked to the curbside. And no, he is not doing that. I have given my reasons as to why that is, and my paper, The Torah Abides, some of which I've written to this group. And I'll actually be probably reading from sections uh, of that tonight. And my commentary on Romans according to the Torah, which I never got around to finishing. Boo-hoo. In the very least, it is sociable knowing that uh, he agrees on this particular point with Kepha, who his own self bore our sins and his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live into righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Kepha, Rishon, 1 Peter 2.24. It seems the most evident that the sins of the righteous are, were placed upon Yahusha during those three hours of darkness, if not at that precise moment when he said those words. Some of you will claim the sins of the entire world were placed upon him, and I'm not arguing. I'm simply repeating Paul and Kepha's pronouns. The us and our in their address indicate an intended audience, not everyone. You will have to look elsewhere to find the universalism pronoun. And again, I'm not arguing if people want to make a case for that. I just don't see it here. Another indicator as to why Yahushua lost his power, or his akkad, if you prefer, could be found in Habakkuk. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. That comes from Habakkuk 1.13. Seems to me like the three combined witnesses of Habakkuk, Kepha, and Paul paint an abominable yet stunningly beautiful picture of what happened when Yahushua cried out from his crucifixion device. Our Heavenly Father turned his eyes away from the iniquity heaped upon Mashiach, thereby resulting in his loss of Ikad, as well as his power, both tied together but only so that we might be granted those two tenets of our salvation, though we are undeserving of them. Which leads me into the third and final domino effect of Bezorah Kepha 13, stopping for a pause of coffee. The veil of the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two, top to bottom, mind you, rather than bottom to top. We all know that an earthquake didn't do that. Christians love to suggest that the tearing of the veil was all about grace and how we needn't obey the commands given to us in the Torah anymore because the Torah no longer abides, but mostly because of grace. Yahuwah was apparently destroying the very method of worship which he had instituted. Did I get that right? Ridiculous. 
And did you hear the quip about grace and how the definition of grace has been altered so as to imply a stumbling sinner receiving favor rather than a graceful person conforming to a standard and with the sachet to prove it? Chapter and verse, please. Do please show me in scripture where the tearing of the veil signified a change of mind on the parts of Elohim in so much that his instructions in righteous living was a curse all of a sudden. You can try, but you will not succeed. The most popular notion seems to be one which claims we can all freely enter the presence of the Most High because we are kingdom priests and also because of grace. I'm not completely against that notion. The part about being priests is most certainly true. Of course, grace is not what they advertise. You know, a, a graceful person, as I said, is not a stumbling sinner. That's not a graceful person. Let us not forget, however, that the high priest alone was admitted entry on behalf of Yashorel, and that we still have a high priest via the ministry of Yehusha Mashiach. Let's not strip him of that role, okay? He still is the one that goes into the Holy Holies, not us. No, the rules haven't changed. The tearing of the temple veil did not cancel Yehu's instructions and set apart living. Quite contrary, it was a judgment aimed at those who murdered the author of the Torah, the word of Elohim. Claiming the opposite, that it was torn so that sin might be given a license under the grace category, is the wrong answer to give. I asked for a chapter and verse after listening to your opinion, and in return, I have one to give. So this comes from Bezorah Bar Talmai, or Bartholomew, uh, chapter 1. And again, uh, Bar Talmai, or Bartholomew, said, Adonai, I saw the angels ascending before Adam and singing praises. But one of the, okay, so the context here is that he's, he's, <coughs> excuse me, he's talking about when he stood back from afar and he saw Mashiach being crucified and he's giving the scene where he sees the angels ascending and descending and he sees, I'll, I'll talk more about it tonight, he sees Mashiach leaving the cross and he, he sees uh, Adam coming up out of Sheol being resurrected. Anyways, he says, uh, I saw the angels ascending before Adam and singing praises, but one of the angels, which was very great above the rest, would not ascend up with them. And there was in his hand a sword of fire, and he was looking steadfastly upon thee only. And all the angels, so he's he, this one angel, all these other angels are going about their business. And this one angel, he is his eyes is fixed on Mashiach on the cross or on the tree. And he can't, he's like, he's just pissed. He can't, he can't. He's like, how can you guys go about your business? I can't stop thinking about this. Which is an interesting picture of angels because it shows that angels, um, they're not perfect, right? Like holy, being holy and set apart doesn't mean that you can't make mistakes or even sin or transgress for that matter, um, which would make you, know, make you <laughs> less than holy. But uh, this idea that, that angels are just these robots, that's actually not the way the ancients saw it at all. This angel is certainly not a robot. He is free to make his own decisions, to either obey the command or to do like a rescue mission and pull Yahusha off the cross. And all the angels besought him, besought him, so the others are pleading with him, that he would go up with them, but he would not. But when you didn't command him to go up, I beheld a flame of fire issuing out of his hands and going even into the city of Yerushalayim. So now he's entering the city to be like Rambo, to, to see, he, he could, if he wanted to, he could just kill everybody off. I mean, this angel is pissed. And Yahushua said unto him, blessed art thou, Bar Talmai, my beloved, because you saw these mysteries. 
This was one of the angels of vengeance, which stand before me to stand before my father's throne. And this angel he sent unto me. And for this cause, he would not ascend up because he desired to destroy all the powers of the world. But when I commanded him to send up, there went a flame out of his hand and rent asunder the veil of the temple and parted it in two pieces for a witness unto the, unto the children of Yasharel for my passion because they crucified me. The veil, the veil was separate, which separated the Holy of Holies from the temple was 30 feet long and perhaps just as tall and was so thick an entire uh, handbreadth by most sources, it is often concluded that no two horses could have pulled them apart. Its tearing was the result of a flaming sword at the hands of an avenging angel. And by the sound of it, a badass one to boot. Grace wasn't on his mind from what I can tell, but maybe I'm reading it all wrong. It was a judgment against the temple controllers, pure and simple. They murdered the son of Elohim, and so an angel of vengeance responded in kind. Imagine owing the mob money and a collector breaks a finger or two. He may not be so merciful on his next visit if you get my drift. It was like that for Yerushalayim. Think of it as a warning. They had 40 years to repent. He was like the guy you know, who came and breaks the fingers, right? Angels did return uh, to coincide with the glorious appearing of Yehusha Hamashiach in 70 AD, and the temple was completely destroyed on that go-round. Of course, all Jerusalem was too. Where, where I will concede with typical Christian doctrine is in the atoning sacrifice of our high priest, Yehusha Hamashiach, as per Hebrews 5. You can rehearse that well-known chapter for yourself. But then consider what little has changed. It was always the role of the high priest to offer the atoning sacrifice as a representative of Yasharel. It didn't mean such and such person, person went out and began sinning again because they were good to go. You know, the high priest does the sacrifice and oh good, I, I've got a license to sin now. No, it didn't work out like that. Don't even go there. In turn, the Hebrew would have to put his faith in the sacrifice made on his behalf. It's why, apart from the exchange from Levite to Melchizedek, little to nothing has changed. We place our faith in the actions of our Torah-abiding high priest, Yehusha HaMashiach, knowing that Elohim's wrath has been averted. All right, so nothing has changed. Just as back in the Old Testament times, you would have to put your faith in the high priest that he went and did the sacrifice on your behalf. Same thing. We put our faith that, you know, we have to have, you know, the faithfulness, right? But we put our belief, our faith that Yehusha HaMashiach did this for us. And, you know, Christianity, they, they, they have the right idea with that. They just dump, they fumble with the ball. They, they just don't want to recognize the Torah. They, they don't want to see this very system that they're claiming that he's upholding. They don't want to, you know, uphold that themselves. Bezora, uh, Bar Talmai gives us a behind this, the curtain glance at why the veil was torn, spiritually speaking. An avenging angel did the deed. I bring it to your attention because the pronouncement of judgment lines up seamlessly with the narrative of Bezora Kifa, specifically who was responsible for offing Mashiach, and I stand by it. Regarding their judgment, even the Talmud agrees. Okay, so this is from Yoma 39b, 5 through 6, the uh, Babylonian Talmud. The sages taught during the tenure of Shimon Hadzadik, 
The lot for Elohim always arose in the high priest's right hand after his death. It occurred only occasionally. But during the 40 years prior to the destruction of the second temple, the lot for Elohim did not arise in the high priest's right hand at all. So too, the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat that was sent to Azazel did not turn white. And the westernmost lamp of the candelabrum, that would be the menorah, did not burn continually. And the doors of the sanctuary opened by themselves as a sign that they would soon be opened by enemies. Okay, so, and then, until Raban uh, Yokinen ben Zakai scolded them, he said to the sanctuary, 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 why do you frighten yourself with these signs? I know about you that you will ultimately be destroyed. And Zachariah, son of Ido, has already prophesied concerning you. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Uh, Zachariah 11.1, Lebanon being an appellation for the temple. Based upon this stunning admission of guilt in the Talmud, some have suggested the doors of the sanctuary clawed into the veil when swinging wide open, thereby severing it. I couldn't outright say. I wasn't there and am somewhat unclear on when the door opening episode transpired, though it appears to kickstart the 40 years leading up to destruction. So the Talmud is talking about an actual event that happens when Yahushua HaMashiach was crucified. They don't want to make that connection for you, but they're telling you it was a sign that the judgment was coming for them. And they knew it. Either way, a spiritual agent was responsible for the deed, because as you and I both know, doors of that magnitude do not open on their own. For Rabbi Yochanan bin Zakai, the conclusion was an obvious one. Judgment had been pronounced upon them. The enemy was approaching. The temple would be destroyed. Bizarre Lucas was left on the cutting room floor, but it makes the same claim about the veil being torn in 2345. What I find particularly uh, stunning is that all three said not, it was left on the cutting room floor by me. I didn't quote from it. What I find particularly stunning is that all three synoptic gospels think to include it, as does Bazar Kifa and uh, Bartholomew. And why is that? As you have seen, the temple controllers knew full well what the veil and door swinging episode entailed. The incident was more than likely the talk of the town. It would have been in all the gossip columns. It just so happens that the gospel writers were connect-the-dot specialists. They went out of their way to mention it as a point, pointed reminder to Rabbi Yochanan bin Zakai and others as to why judgment was headed their way. All right, Bezorah Kifa, verse 14. And then they drew out the nails from the hands of Adonai and laid them upon the earth, and the whole earth quaked, and great fear arose, then the sun shone, and it was the ninth hour. An earthquake is a telltale, uh, telltale sign that angels are ascending or descending upon the earth. I promise I would cover this tonight, the subject. It's totally biblical, but very few seem to realize that fact, nor appreciate it when they do. Leave it to a post-Newtonian science to strip away the spiritual causes of our material world. Imagine if an earthquake rocked one city or another, the city of angels. Man, I should put that in there. City of Angels. And then the news reported, looks like we've got some seismic angelic activity again today. A man can dream, can't, can't he not? Well, here's how the spiritual side of an earthquake goes down among the synoptic writers. We see in Matthew Yahoo 28.2, and behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of Yahuwah descended from heaven 
and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Matthew makes a connection for us when dropping that little factoid about the angel being the cause of the earthquake and then moves right along as though it were the commonly accepted view of his day. As in, yes, there was another earthquake again, but then you should know an angel of Yahuwah was spotted in Yosef of Rama's garden just northwest of Yerushalayim. To which your response is, of course, that makes perfect sense. I should have known better. Well, on with the passion narrative then. The earthquake angel connection isn't some bizarre one-off into the left field of the theology department either. The earliest reference that I can find in canonical scripture takes us all the way back to Mount Sinai in which we read uh, in Exodus or Shemoth, 1918. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because... Yahuwah descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. It's a simple and straight, it's a simple and straightforward equation. Yahuwah plus descent upon the earth from heaven equals an earthquake to remember. Cause and effect. Only a geologist with a doctorate in seismology would attempt to explain this passage in any other light. Leave it to a, you know seismologist doctorate. Well, the underground rock suddenly breaks and there is rapid motion along the fault. This is him explaining this. The sudden release of energy causes the seismic waves that make the ground shake, you see. Sure, Dr. Von Rockengrinder, that must be it. Mm -hmm. And I just now realized something. In my pre-existence research paper, The Earth is a Womb, I describe many ways in which spiritual entities derive the weather, ultimately cultivating the earth as its caretakers, while mentioning nothing of earth-shattering events such as this one. I'm thinking it's high time for some renditions. And then we read this in Judges 5.5. 5. The mountains quaked at the presence of Yahuwah, this Sinai at the presence of Yahuwah Elohai of Yasharel. And there it is again, the Sinai quaking episode rehearsed in song rather than prose. Moving right along, you will perhaps be happy to know that Matif Yahu covers the same earthquake mentioned by Kifa, though the details he adds are once again of a supernatural variety. Now, we read this earlier tonight. I'm going to read it again. Matthew 27. Yahusha, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up his ruach, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the Kodashim which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared into many. Kepha's earthquake, according to Matthew, was responsible for cracking open many family tombs, presumably around the foothills of Yerushalayim, though who really knows how many souls were brought to life and the, the proximity of their perimeter. But then notice that the choice bodies within these tombs did not leave their abode until after Yahusha rose from the dead three days later. Now, I don't, I, I actually need to double check if that's true or not. Um, I'll have to source that. If they came out right at that moment, I think it happened after the resurrection, but I could be wrong. What were they doing sitting around in the crypt all that time, twiddling their thumbs or getting caught up on their beauty rest? It's not like they weren't doing that in Shul already. Many have claimed it was the tombs which cracked open during the earthquake, but that the dead did not rise until after the Sabbath. That may be so. I wasn't there. I don't really know. It would most certainly line up with the second earthquake involving the angel at the tomb in Mount Sethiahu 22, one chapter later. 
The idea is that the dead could not possibly return to life before Mashiach, specifically because of verses such as this one from you know who. And this comes from uh, everybody's favorite apostle, Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Some of your favorite apostle, some of, some of your uh, others' least favorite apostle. Look at me, put my foot in my mouth. But now is Mashiach risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept, right? So he's the first fruit before everyone else. Thanks for once again entering the conversation and shutting down our theological investigation, Paul. Really the nerve of that guy. Always writing his letters, attempting to have the final say on everything. Sheesh. Some of you stemming from Paul's posse will tell me the dead very well could not have risen before Mashiach. But I disagree. You will once again have to sit tight and let me explain. Oh, good. I don't even remember my explanation. I wrote this like two months ago. So I'm actually eager to see what my conclusions were. This must be my age. I forget easily. Six days before the Passover and at Yahushua's command, Eliezer, that would be Lazarus, rose from the dead in Bethany, and nobody in the gospel choir bats an eye. I have yet to encounter anyone who would argue that Eliezer lived forever. He had the fun of looking forward to his death all over again. Therefore, he was not the dead person whom Paul spoke about. Neither are those who rose from their tombs during the Matthew Yahoo 2752 incident. Now, I write here, I write here, I could be wrong about this, guys, because I had written this. Um, I might be totally wrong about this. It says, I wrote, they too died again. I'm not sure that they did. I need to, I need to go look at uh, Bezora Nicodemus. See, even I make mistakes in my own books, in my own writings. Anyways, let's go with it anyways. Let's just go with the flow. They, they too died again. Let's see what I have to say. One can argue circles around Matzeth Yahu all day, inserting time leaps and other narrative stylings into the text that better fit the theological picture of choice. But then look at how Nicodemus describes the tomb-cracking incidents. Uh, Bezora Nicodemus 8.2, and while the sun was eclipsed, Behold, the veil of the temple was rent from the top to the bottom, and the rocks also were rent, and the graves opened, and many bodies of Kodashim which slept arose. Okay. I'm on the edge of my seat here. The word that is used is eclipsed, and I'll let that slide. Copies of Nicodemus have been found in Greek, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, uh, Georgian, Slavonic. That's a fun word, Slavonic. And though it is claimed to have been written in Hebrew, which is most certainly my opinion, the, the, the general consensus is that the, Zora, uh, the Gospel of Nicodemus was originally written in Hebrew. I don't have all those various language copies laid out before me. Use whatever word you want, but three hours describes a supernatural event, and there is nothing on the worldwide record to indicate the slowing of speed of the moon in relationship with the sun on this occasion. Let's not get distracted, though. The key phrase in all of this is, while the sun was eclipsed, contained within the three hours of darkness is the opening of the graves and the rising of the Kodashim. Both occurrences coincided with the earthquake, and just as importantly, before the sun began to shine again. Chalk, chalk it up to the supernatural again. Only, um, only rather than angels, it was the Ruachoth, as well as the Nefesh of men, passing from the realm of the dead to our own this time around. Many have pondered what it must have been like to meet these dead people resurrected and walking about Yerushalayim. Well, Nicodemus does that, and he describes them for us in the following passage. He says in uh, chapter 12, It is indeed a thing really, is it indeed a thing really surprising 
that he should not only himself arise from the dead, but also raise others from their graves who have been seen by many in Yerushalayim. And now hear me a little. We all know, we all knew the blessed Simeon, the high priest, who took Yahushua with an infant into his arms in the temple. This same uh, Shimon, Simeon Shimon, this same Shimon had two sons of his own, and we were all present at their death and funeral. Go therefore and see their tombs, for these are open, and they are risen. And behold, they are in the city of Ramah, spending their time together in offices of devotion. Some indeed have heard the sound of their voices in prayer, but they will not discourse with anyone, but they continue as mute as dead men. An odd bunch for sure. The two sons of Shimon were hanging about in Yosef's own city of Ramah, that would be Arimathea, not speaking with anybody. You'd think people would have questions. What was the temperature like in Sheol, being one of them? I, well, that's one of the first things. I, was it hot in Sheol? That'd be one of the first. Was there, you know, good ventilation? I'm reminded of that scene in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, when Bones asks a resurrected Spock, he resurrected in the third one, sorry if I destroyed the original trilogy for you, what it was like to be numbered among the dead. Spock basically tells him he needs to die too before they can talk, as it's simply beyond his frame of reference, in which Bones replies, you mean I have to die to discuss your insights on death? And now I'm wondering, are we ever given an account of Eliezer speaking to an audience after his own resurrection? Perhaps he, he also uh, behaved as one of these stoic mute men. The resurrection of Eliezer is often advertised to us as Yahushua's greatest miracle, apart from his own. Well, excuse me then, how is the resurrection of countless other souls, dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands for all I know, we don't know how many resurrected, not a contender for Bashiach's greatest ministry miracle? But that's not all. Consider the rather odd fact that the dead were resurrected after Yahushua exclaimed, my power, my power, you have forsaken me. Or as it is quoted in Nazarene, my Elohim, do not let your power drain away from me. He spoke these words, died, was set down upon the earth, which prompted an earthquake that coincided with a good old fashioned dead rising in the local crypt. Mind you, Yahushua was dead as a doornail or a dodo or whatever when, when he performed this little overlooked miracle. The power of the Ruach HaKadosh had already left him by then, according to his own testimony. That's pretty badass. Sum this up, earthquakes. It's what happens when spiritual entities manifest themselves in the material realm. Sometimes they are due to angels ascending or descending upon the earth. Yahuwah has been known to ignite an earthquake or two. In the instances of Yahushua's death, it was the uh, resurrected nefesh of countless dead. Though that is not the whole of it. There is way more happening with the darkness and the earthquake in Bezora Bar Talmai. And this comes from chapter one again. In Bar Talmai or Bartholomew said, Adonai, when you went to be hung upon the cross, I followed from afar off and saw you hung upon the cross and the angels coming down from heaven worshiping you. And when there came darkness, I beheld and I saw that you had vanished away from the cross. Uh-oh, there's that docetism again. Dun, dun, dun. And I heard only a voice in the parts under the earth and great wailing and gnashing of teeth all of a sudden. Tell me, Adonai, 
whether thou wit from the cross. And Yahusha answered and said, Blessed art thou, Bar Talmai, my beloved, because you saw this mystery. And now will I tell thee all things whatsoever thou hast asked of me. For when I vanished away from the cross, then went I down into Sheol, that I might bring up Adam and all them that were with him, according to the supplication of Michael, Michael the archangel. Angels again, an entire host of them. Remember when Yahushua told Bar Talmai that he would see heaven open and the angels of Elohim ascending and descending upon the Son of Man in Yochanan chapter 1? This was that event. Strange that no canonical scripture thinks to mention it, not even Yochanan. I mean, he like, it, it's, it's almost like when you see like those plot points in the movies and it never comes to fruition and you wonder if there was like they changed the script or they had a rewrite and they left that in i, I always wonder that, about that about Yokinen. why did he talk about that but never show uh, the moment when it happened ironically the only text which does come to us by way of bar talmai's the zora uh, would be Yokinen. and anyways you will recall the avenging angel who unsheathed his sword so as to shred the temple veil but then look at what else is going on Yahushua brought Adam up from Sheol as well as a host of others. What an earthquake that must have been. And to answer the question as to how any of this was possible after he had taken on the sins of the world and lost his power, we see the intervention of Michael, the archangel defender of Yasharel, supplicating for the success of his mission. That's absolutely incredible. Something else not to be overlooked in all of this is Yahushua's vanishing from the cross. Another odd picture indeed. It may very well be the docetism doctrine that we had earlier encountered, but with a lemon twist. Bar Talmai cannot very well be stating that Yahushua vanished in the sight of everyone. Had that been the case, and I think you would be safe to assume Herod's soldiers and the Parashim, Pontius Pilate and his garrison, as well as the crowd of onlookers, including the three Mariams that were recorded as being present, not forgetting Gistus and Demas, would have exclaimed, OMG! Something has happened to the body of Yahushua, king of the Yahudim. He's gone. Who has stolen him and where have they made off with it? Bar Talmai is seeing a vision, obviously. Or is he? Perhaps it is more complicated than that. And why I am asking you to put on your Gnostic glasses again. So hang with me here. Nothing chase, chases people off by like saying Gnosticism. The mere fact that he vanished tells us that the real Yahushua was not to be seen on the cross, at least for a spiel, though his body was offered as a sacrifice. This is speaking of his nefesh, the laughing Yahushua whom we encountered earlier. If what Bar Talmai appears to be saying is true, then I have it all wrong. We all do. Accordingly, one is tempted to conclude that Yahushua departed from the cross entered Sheol, freed the Kodashim, and then returned to the cross once again, only to claim his power had been removed from him. Did he die twice? That cannot be. You should know that I sat here for quite some time between that sentence and this one, attempting to figure out the puzzle before us. I spent a, there's actually a lot of sentences where like I spent 40 minutes trying to think about my next sentence. A solution is not so complicated after all. I think it is as simple as saying Yahushua gave up his Ruach and then Bar Talmai saw him vanish from the cross, the crucifixion device. One is even tempted to say that 
the Talmudin did not witness the nails being removed from Yahushua's feet and hands when he was taken down and laid upon the earth, though I am not putting the vision into doubt. All, I'm, all I am attempting to do is lay a series of varying narratives, images over each other, lay them up over each other, each of which claims to be describing the same events, but from a different point of view, and the pieces fit. IMO. Now, Ron Wyatt, we're on page 140 if anyone needs caught up. Ron Wyatt claims to have discovered the Ark of the Covenant in a hollow rock cradled safely below a cave within the bowels out of Golgotha. I don't intend to present his evidence here. It, it's an interesting story if anyone wants to look into it. You have very likely already looked into his claims and have made up your own mind on the idea, no matter what I say anyways either in favor or for against. For those of you who either weren't alive or didn't attend an evangelical church in the 1990s, like I did, uh, probably most of us here did, White offered us an image of the purported cherubim and mercy seat so blurry as to make the Patterson-Gimlin Sasquatch film a fine-tuned work of art. His claim that the blood of Mashiach resides upon the ark to this very day is certainly no small matter and explains precisely why our present-day controllers want nothing to do with it. That, or I'm willing to bet, an avenging angel like the one we saw melted their faces off in attempting to unearth it. No, the Ark of the Covenant isn't going anywhere. It's not going to the museum or warehouse or to the temple. I don't think that the Jews there would care for it. They don't want it. I think that they know it's there. They, they would have to at this point. I, I think they're, they're not going to do anything about it. Uh, and this is coming from someone who openly advocates that the millennial kingdom of Mashiach already physically happened upon the earth. It's there, guarded by an angel beneath the Mount of Skulls, and will remain there, sprinkled with the blood of Mashiach until the redemption story has reached its end. I think it's actually a beautiful story. Uh, that uh, my my uh, what I'm saying is that it has to remain there, even in the millennial kingdom. Like as long as his atoning sacrifice for the sins of man needs to be held and upkept, that's not going anywhere. His theory, as you well know, is that the ground opened. Up, this would be Ron White's theory, opened up during the earthquake, thereby allowing his blood to trickle down from the cross. If only White had read from the gospel, which is presently being dissected. Yahushua was laid upon the ground, and then the earthquake happens. I find that fascinating. But Zora Kifa makes this scenario even more plausible in my book. Very likely, the earth cracked open beneath his body. So what he's advocating is that he was up on the cross, this blood trickles down through a crack and goes down. But in this case, he's actually on, if you're following, he's actually on the ground, earthquake happens, I mean, he's like right below the, the crucifixion device at this point. The 1960 Valdivia earthquake was a niner on the uh, moment magnitude scale, which I am told closely resembles the uh, Richter scale, and lasted approximately 10 minutes, the longest in recorded history. I haven't the faintest clue how long the passionate earthquake transpired, but I'm of the opinion that the blood covered the ark and then Adam was released from Sheol. So hopefully you can see where I'm taking this. Another thing I am told is that an earthquake of magnitude 10 or larger is impossible given that measurements are in proportion to the length of the fault line. 
Well, then, there is a phrase you are all familiar with. Sometimes we are offered historical ev events which are biblical in proportion. I don't think there is a scale proportion enough or even capable, for that matter, of measuring the spiritual activity as well as the accomplishments in this blink and you'll miss it moment. There is another phrase which you are likely familiar with. When taken as a whole with the other gospel accounts, the earthquake of Bezorakifa for 14 was off the charts. All right, if you need caught up, we're on page 143. We're on verse 15 of Bezorakifa, and this is what it says. And the Yahudim rejoiced and gave his body to Yosef that he might bury it, since he had seen what good things that he had done. Actually, they didn't have a choice, but whatever. It was by Pilate's orders. And he took Adonai and rolled him in a linen cloth and brought him to his own tomb, which was called Gan Yosef. Well, that was an ordeal. Wait, pausing for some more coffee. Let's try that again. That was an ordeal. Only a verse or two earlier, people were stumbling around in the darkness with lanterns, falling into ditches. We read about that last time. An earthquake sent nearly everyone into sweats of terror, and now what is happening? The sun is out again. Yahushua is dead, and the Yahudim are rejoicing. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but there appears to be celebrations in the marketplace. No more of the Nazarene, no more of that Nazarene prophet stumping everyone with his kingdom parables. On with the Passover, then. I'm sure it will turn out fine for everyone. Otherwise, there is not much to add other than what other Gospels have already reported upon. Yosef of Ramah dresses Yahushua in the linen shroud and then buries him in his own tomb. But you knew that already. Gan Yosef simply means Yosef's garden. The contrast in all of this is why Yosef did the deed. Aside from the obvious that he was following through with the command given to him in, in Devarim 21-23, it, it, uh, that would be Deuteronomy, it says he went out of his way because of the good things that Yahushua had done. That is to say, the Yahudim were rejoicing over the death of a good man. And so as your choice cross-reference dealer, I've got just the thing to mark the occasion. A Bible passage which fits what has just been contrasted for us like a glove. This comes from Bezorah Yochanan, chapter 10. Then the Yahudim took up stones again to stone him. Yahushua answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works did you stone me? The Yahudim answered him, saying, For a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy, and because that you, being a man, make yourself Elohim. For all the claims that Yahushua didn't match their ideal vision of Mashiach, whatever that was, and people have, you know, tried to figure that out, it is clear that good works wasn't on the top of their list. They had already intended to stone him despite acknowledging that he was a good man, indicating that they didn't want a quote-unquote good man to rule them. No, they wanted above all else a puppet Mashiach who sponsored their wickedness. I don't know about you, but my head is swimming with Paul's letter to the Romans, particularly chapter 2. There are varying disagreements as to who he is speaking of in his criticism, though, as I have already stated in my commentary on his epistle, it was the Yahudim. 
a link was dropped mainly because I was tempted to take you back through all 25 pages of commentary here on chapter two. And then you would be confused as to which commentary you hold in your hands, Kifa or Paul. And why shan't, uh, and we shan't have that. To sum the entire chapter up in the simplest of terms, Paul was schooled by the perishing, the very people who killed Mashiach, and knew where they were coming from in their disdain for the Goyim, the Gentiles, particularly his kingdom welcoming practices. The Yahudim judged the Goyim for being without the Torah, but did not believe Yahuwah would hold them accountable to the same standards. In return, Paul assured them that Yah would be cleaning out his own house first, and we know that judgment event to be the destruction of Yerushalayim in 70 AD. Without quoting from the actual chapter, because then we would be here all day, or all night, until the morning, I believe the following passage in the Babylonian Talmud sums up the worldview of Paul's contemporaries nicely. So this comes from Mishnah Sanhedrin. And the nerve of them uh, having a book in the Talmud called the Sanhedrin. You'll find out why I say the, the noive uh, maybe later tonight. All of Israel have a share in the world to come. And they say, according to Isaiah 60, 12. And your people, all righteous forever, shall inherit the land, the sprout of my plantings, the work of my hands to be glorified. All of Israel have a share. And then they add, even those who were executed by Beth Dan for their wickedness have a share in the world to come. No, that is not a typo. All of Israel have a share in the world to come. Actually, I just did put a typo in there. I should put an E after the share, but whatever. They're first in, that's a, <laughs> that's a Microsoft Word playing tricks on me. And they're first and foremost speaking of a genetic lineup rather than a spiritual seed. All right, that's what's important here. Am I reading too much into this to assume even rebellious souls like Korak would inherit a portion in the world to come? Seems so. The conclusion has, has those executed by the Beth Din, a rabbinical court of Yerushalayim, inheriting a share in the world to come, even if it were for wicked deeds. Though they don't say the same thing about Yehusha HaMashiach or his followers. They, they say quite the opposite. He is not included in this quote. Uh, he is forever boiling in uh, feces out in the lowest pit of hell, according to the Talmud. Uh, such was the accepted dogma in Paul's own day. I will remind you, these were the same individuals who acknowledged the good works of Yahusha and didn't have a problem killing him, even if it was wicked to do so. Again, in Yahusha's own words, this is Bezorah Yochanan, ye are of your father, the devil, in the lust of your father, ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. I speak that which I have seen from with my father, and you do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said to, unto him, Abraham is our father. Yahushua said unto them, if ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. Keep reading a couple of verses and you will see that the Yahudim were not the children of Elohim, despite their supposed lineage. The reason being is that they did the deeds of their father, Hasatan. Those are Mashiach's words, not mine. I quoted from the passage earlier, try not to misrepresent my own implications either. 
What I am not saying is that the Yahudim were the genetic seeds of Hasatan. Uh, Yahushua does attribute them to being the sons of Abraham, though not necessarily through Yitzhak, more like uh, through Esau. Edomites were also the children of Abraham, and we may very well be dealing with them in this passage, which I went over in the beginning of this uh, Bezorah, like with Herod. Understand that it is the work of each individual which decides whose children we become, Elohim or Hasatan, meaning that your, your, your mother or your brother could be a child of Hasatan and your father or your mother and your sister could be a child of uh, Elohim, right? Houses divided. In a nutshell, that is what Yahushua came to free us from. And then we read this in the book of the Nazarene. Some days later, Yahushua was in another place with about 60 disciples, one of whom said to him, there is Yahushua, the faster, who claims to be the Mashiach of Elohim, and Yosef, who proclaims deliverance by the sword, while many say the Enlightener and Deliverer are two men. So this Yahushua here is not Yahushua Mashiach. He's a different Yahushua Messiah. There were two of them at the same time. A little confusing, I know. The gale of words makes it difficult to get a bearing on the harbor entrance. Yahushua, Yahushua said, things are changing, and many alive today will live to see a different world. I come to set men free by removing the shackles of ignorance and to deliver them from evil and from themselves. A repeated theme in Nazarim are the many Mashiach contenders vying for attention during Yahushua's own ministry. Two of them are mentioned here, uh, Yahushua the Faster and Yosef the Swordbearer, though elsewhere Barabbas, the, the famous Barabbas who was freed, comes into the narrative as well. He too was a uh, Mashiach wannabe, and he had a lot of followers. Sounds like a lot of static, if I do say so myself. Yahushua's mission, in his own words, was to set men free by removing the shackles of ignorance and to deliver them that deliver them from evil and from themselves. I love that quote. The temple controllers didn't like that. Best to repay his goodness with evil. Then, I have one more passage which sums up the Zorakifa 15. Uh, before moving on, it is this: and they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Psalm 109:5. All right, now we're moving on to the Zorakifa 16. Doing really good on time. Hope you guys are enjoying this. Then the Yahudim and the elders and the priests, perceiving what evil they had done to themselves, began to lament and say, Woe for our sins, the judgment has drawn nigh, and the end of Yerushalayim. That lines up right with the, uh, the Talmud. There they go, prophesying again. We saw them going about the oracle business back in verse 5, when you will recall. They beat Yahushua with sticks like a dog, calling him the son of Elohim. I furthermore insinuated as much when commenting upon the Gnostic apocalypse at Kepha, noting how the insults they flung at him were in actuality heaps of praise, according to the book in the very least. You know, don't you know, get mad at me, that's what the book says. At present, what is stunning is in the actual prophecy being put forward. The Yahudim are citing the very forewarning made by Yahushua in Massive Yahoo 24. Recognize the address? 
mm -hmm, the hotly debated this or that generation Bible memory verse, which has the distinct habit of burning theological bridges. And you may have very likely lost friends over it. Same one. Well, here it is for the 700,000th millionth billionth time in your life. Matthew 24, 1 through 2. And Yahushua went out and departed from the temple, and his Talmudim came to him uh, for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Yahushua said unto them, See ye not all these things? Amen, I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. I would continue citing from the passage, but then I might find out you're a futurist and lead with the Zionist narrative, preferring that uh, generation rather than this, generationally speaking. And then you'll accuse me of being a filthy preterist. We will go round and round, back and forth like that, throwing all sorts of isms at the other, hoping one or the other sticks to the wall or hits the fan in the process. And why have that? The point of this current exercise is the strange foreboding being put forward by Yahushua's executioners. Mostly that they, the they, them people, line up with Mashiach's own former prophecy regarding Yerushalayim's demise. And even more ironically, that its total destruction would only come about because of their murdering him for making claims such as these. Should prophecy among false prophets seem strange to you, then might I suggest your entire qualifier for a true prophet needs readjustment. What I'm saying is, is that even these wicked people were in these moments able to prophesy correctly. And that goes against really what we learn in Christianity, right? Like if someone prophesies correctly, they must be a good person. We, we should listen to what they have to say. I don't think that's the case. A common misconception is a prophet is judged uh, false based upon a supposed quote-unquote word from the Lord not coming to fruition, or contrarily, that a false prophet cannot speak what is true. That must be another oral tradition from the Christian Talmud because Yahuwah doesn't hold to either definition as far as I can tell. Even uh, ever hear of the Deuteronomy 13 test? Don't sweat if you haven't. It's that's why I'm here, to keep you up to date on the conversation. And so we, we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spoke unto you, saying, let us go after other Elohim, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahuwah Elohim proves you to know whether ye love Yahuwah Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after Yahuwah Elohim and fear him and guard his commands and obey his voice, and ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. Do you see that? If Even if someone prophesies and they come true and they, they perform miracles and they could tell you all about your life story and they tell you, do not guard his commands, but don't listen to them. The warning given to us by Yahuwah Elohim comes by way of reality check. False prophets and miracle workers will enter our lives. Complications arise when coming to terms with the fact that we cannot know them based upon their spoken word. Because as Yahuwah says, the sign or the wonder may very well come to pass. 
if if you retort, we can only know them by their fruit, then I will ask you to define fruits based upon this passage. First and foremost, the explanation given to us is that false prophets lead us to other Elohim. What Elohim are we talking about? Supposing a prophet stands behind the pulpit of your church and says, Hare Krishna, then I will argue that he is a terrible false prophet. Another Elohim is also defined for us in the same passage. Anyone who doesn't guard Yahuwah's commands or obey his voice is a false prophet leading his audience to a false god, even if he holds a familiar name like, say, Jesus. The commands being spoken of are contained in the books of Moshe, the Torah. Telling us to be obedient is the measure of a true prophet. We just covered the good works of Yahusha in Bezorah Kepha 15, and this is it. The Yahudim rejected him because not even they had done away with the commands uh, via their oral laws, the Talmud. Seems pretty self-explanatory by this point. Any questions? Eventually, I think we're going to be covering a little bit later tonight on how they actually did away with the Torah uh, themselves. And Yahushua was the only one showing up on the scene saying, no, like the least of the Father's commands, you need to keep those. If you disobey the least of the commands, teach others to do the same, don't expect to be great in the kingdom if you make it at all. Eventually, as the commentary continues, I will get around to explaining how Hasatan did not actually know who Yahushua was at the hour of his crucifixion. Just, man, I make a lot of promises in here. I gotta, I gotta cover that. I have a whole paper on that, by the way. Some of you might remember Adam's resurrection and how Hasatan didn't know who he was. Despite the temptation in the wilderness and also how that little known fact complements the, uh, the Bezora Kifa story arch. We're simply not there in the narrative quite yet. Just today, somebody was protesting my conclusion on this position and brought up Legion. The unclean Ruakoth possessing the two persons with the they, them pronouns who were ultimately cast into the swine as per Matsyahu chapter eight and Lucas chapter eight. It doesn't disprove anything, but here it is anyways. We see in Matsyahu chapter eight, and when he was come to the other side into the country of Gergeshim, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Yahushua, son of Elohim? Have you come hither to torment us before the time? The haunting episode reads almost exactly like the Zorakifa 5 when Yahushua's tormentors spoke as mouthpieces for unclean Ruakoth, claiming, let us drag away the son of Elohim, having obtained power over him. It cannot simply be chalked up to mockery as they could not possibly know Yahushua would cry out, my power, my power. And as you see earlier on, they said, we have obtained power over him. Isn't that interesting? And then he would cry that out within a few short hours. I am telling you now that wicked men, as well as unclean Ruakoth, can speak truth, even though they themselves may not understand the profound message which they themselves have conveyed. Legion, the unclean, the unclean Ruakoth, uh, tossed into the pigs, as well as the temple controllers pronouncing Yerushalayim's doom, may very well have been speaking for that brief moment on behalf of somebody else, a divine emissary with a mission, perhaps. Allow me to explain by way of another passage in scripture. It is so left field and seemingly the opposite of my proposition that it will probably 
take some context, but I'm willing to take the deep dive if you are. All right, so this comes from First Kings chapter 22. Ooh, this looks lengthy. Hold on, I'm pouring myself a little bit more coffee here because I think I need it. All right, long passage, here we go. So he came to the king and the king said unto him, uh, Mikiyahu, shall we go against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we forbear? And he answered him, go and prosper for Yahuwah shall deliver it into the hands of the king. And the king said unto him, how many times shall I adjure you that you tell me nothing but that which is true in the name of Yahuwah? And he, uh, Mikiyahu said, I saw all Yasharil scattered upon the hills as sheep that have not a shepherd. And Yahuwah said, these have no master. Let them return every man to his house in peace. And the king of Yasharil said unto Yehoshaphat uh, or Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would prophesy no good concerning me, but evil? And he said, hear therefore the word of Yahuwah. I saw Yahuwah sitting on his throne. And I, I think this is Mekayahu uh, um, uh, speaking again. I saw Yahuwah sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And Yahuwah said, who shall persuade um, Akav that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this matter and another said on that matter. Uh, this is a Jezebel's uh, husband, um, Ahaz. And so, okay, let me repeat that. Um, so Yahuwah, he's seeing a vision up in heaven. And Yahuwah said, he's speaking to his divine counsel, Yahuwah. And he says, who shall persuade uh, Akav that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this matter, another said on, uh, on that matter. So these different spirits, these Rulkoth, are de debating, they're discussing the matter, what should be done. And there came forth a Ruach and stood before Yahuwah and said, I will persuade him. And Yahuwah said unto him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying Ruach in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you shall persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now, therefore, behold, Yahuwah has put a lying Ruach in the mouths of all these your prophets. And Yahuwah has spoken evil concerning you. But uh, uh, Zedekiahu, the son of Kina'ana, went near. So this is one of uh, the, the, the bad prophets, who was not a prophet of Yahuwah, and smote Mikiyahu on the cheek and said, which way went the Ruach Yahuwah from me to speak unto you? So he's this other, this false prophet is claiming to speak for Yahuwah. The king of Yasharel in this story is none other than Akav of King Akav and Queen Jezebel fame, or Jezebel as you know her. Though many of you know her, many of you know her as Jezebel. He has asked uh, Yehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, king of Yehuda, if he would agree to join him in battle at Ramoth Gilead. Yehoshaphat was legally related through the marriage of his son to the, the, the couple's daughter thereby making business in Yashrael and Yehud, a, a Yehudan affair. Their alliance was unorthodox, considering elsewhere we read of Yehoshaphat, Yahuwah was with Yehoshaphat because he walked in the ways of his father David and sought not into Balaam 
but sought to Yahuwah Elohim of his father and walked in his commandments and not after the doings of Beasherel. We see that in 2 Chronicles. Regardless of his spiritual creds, Yehoshaphat agreed to the business partnership so long as they first acquired Yahuwah. This all occurred in the verses leading up to the passage I showed you. Akav promptly gathered 400 of his finest prophets, and collectively they told him to go up to battle, for Yahuwah had promised to deliver their endeavor into the hand of the king. Yehoshaphat looked around perplexed at having heard the prophecy. He had been trained in the Deuteronomy 13 test, and none of these guys passed it. And so he asked, is there not a prophet of Yahuwah? That we might inquire of him to which the king responded there is one man his name is mekiyahu son of imla and how i hate him <laughs> he prophesies nothing good concerning me but only evil yahushaphat uh, insisted upon a meeting with this uh, mekiyahu fellow which brings us right up to the present the picture before us is of an earthly council which seeks to model itself in the same vein as the divine council held in heaven. The reason we can be sure of this is because Mikiyahu had, had looked in upon the courtroom of heaven and observed its judicial proceedings, which would be so awesome to see. And you can see that scene. All these people claim to go see heaven and none of them talk about you know, scenes like this. He observed Yahuwah surrounded by his entourage in an assembly of Ruachath asking who among them might convince the king to, of Israel to go that he might fall in battle. There were murmurings among its members until finally a Ruach, whom many suspect to be a Satan. It doesn't say a Satan, but a Satan probably, not the Hasatan, stepped forward to volunteer his services. I think my favorite part of this story is when the false prophet Zedkiahu smites Mikiyahu on the cheek claiming, which way went the Ruach Yahuwah for me to speak unto you? I will go ahead and ask you a rhetorical question. How many people claim to speak for the Ruach HaKadosh today when in fact a lying or an unclean Ruach is their informant? I said it was rhetorical, but really if you were paying attention, your response should very easily rely upon the Deuteronomy 13 test. Also, um, Ahab died in the battle of Ramoth and Gilead. In case you were wondering, he threw Mikiyahu in the pan and then went out of his way to prove him wrong, making this more of a self-fulfilling prophecy situation. So it was basically a setup. It's like, you know, Yahuwah was like, we need to, we need to, he's looking at all the possible outcomes. And he's like, okay, we need to figure out an outcome that will actually, I want this guy dead. I want this guy to go to battle and die. We need to figure out the best outcome to get them there. And, you know, the rest is history. To sum up the latest breadcrumb trail, there is nothing cookie cutter about the art of the spoken word, particularly when it is employed from the mouth of unclean Ruachoth. Sometimes they lie, but then in other instances, they lay out the facts, as is the case with uh, Peg Legion and Yahusha's judge and jury executioners in Bezora Kifa 16. It is a complicated affair because we are dealing with intel psyops originating from top brass in heaven. Just because one Ruach plays the part of a career doesn't mean the entire spiritual world is privy to its mission. So if that makes any sense. Just because, you know, a courier comes down and proclaims something doesn't mean the Hasatan is in on it. Like he knows. He doesn't necessarily know. Even he gets stumped. 
Then again, when I do get around to explaining how Hasatan did not actually know who Yahusha was at that hour of his crucifixion, oh man, I guess I need to write that in here because I wasn't planning on it, but now I said I would. So, oh man, all right, uh, I need to get busy. I will furthermore detail the moment when he figured it out. FYI, the reality of what he'd done as well as the consequences had already been spelled out for him by this point in the narrative. What is furthermore evident in all of this is that the temple controllers were uh, ever only acting as the spokesman for their father. We have already gone over who their father was and wink, wink, he wasn't the most high. Therefore, their bemoaning of the coming destruction appears to coincide with Hasatan's own unraveling of the facts. Meaning, as Hasatan figured out who Yahushua HaMashiach was, they figured it out. But they didn't figure it out until he figured it out. In which case, Hasatan had to double down and his children doubled down too. Did Hasatan repent? No. Did the Yahudim repent? No. They just covered their tracks even more. They conspired against him even more. Speaking of which, Bezora Nicodemus, or Nicodemon, ends with a stunning confession. After going about playing the part of a professional sleuth, a detective Pontius Pilate, finally approaches the temple controls with an admission of guilt. And this is how the book ends. And so our scriptures testify that he is the son of Elohim and the Adonai and king of Yasharel. And because of because after his suffering, our chief priests were surprised at the signs which were wrought by his means. We open that sephir to search all the generations down to the generations of Yosef and Miriam, the mother of Yahusha, supposing him to be the seed of David. And so it appears that Yahusha, whom he crucified, is Yahusha Hamashiach, the son of Elohim, and true and El and true and El Elyon. Amen. The Bizarre which bears Nicodemus' name ends like that. It climaxes to a confession, like a masterfully written P.I. novel, and then drops off just like that. Sorry for the spoiler. I should have given you warning, my bad. As I, as I have already mentioned, the temple controllers were only capable of coming to this conclusion because Hasatan was now in the know. Prior, he was not, which means they too were finally caught up to speed. And so they repented of what they'd done, right? I said they repented of what they'd done, right? Questions such as that one reveal the headache of cognitive dissonance, particularly among those who insist that Jews are God's people. The Yahudim had already, when Yahushua already told us they were not in Yochanan chapter 10. That verse doesn't go over well in any modern evangelical church. And uh, actually a lot of Hebrew roots churches for that matter too. The, the Yahudim had already received their hand and it was high time to bow out of the game or double down. All right, uh, and I'm going to end it tonight on Bizarre Kifa 17. This will be really good. Uh, this will probably take us over the nine o'clock hour. I think I can do this. My last uh, last lap. All right, here we go. Bizarre Kifa 17. And I was grieved with my companions. This would be Kifa talking. And being wounded in mind, we hid ourselves, for we were being sought for by them as criminals and as being those wishing to set fire to the temple. Well, that's interesting. And upon all these things, we fasted and sat morning and weeping night and day until the Sabbath. To this very day, Judaism is identified with the rabbinic tradition of the parashim and vice versa. That is to say, the ancient Hebrew faith contained neither Judaism nor the parashim, and there is no Judaism to be had without them. If you don't believe me, then follow this link right there to Judaism's official wiki article, 
wherein the unlearned mind will read a series of provocative claims. I aim to go over a couple of them over the following so many pages. You may be wondering why I'm thinking of bringing it up that bringing it up that whole messy business now. It has to do with what Kifa claims in verse 17. The quip about his being wounded in mine probably refers to the cockcrow incident and seeing as how the narrative has turned to his own personal experience indicates there is much which should perceive verse 1 but doesn't. Uh, meaning what I'm saying is that verse one of Bizarre Kifa probably just picks up somewhere near the end of the book. There's probably a whole bunch that we don't have because it's just odd that all of a sudden his personal recollections comes into this for the first time. And we don't even get the cockcrow incident in Bizarre Kifa, which that's weird because there's no context for why he's wounded in mind. You get my drift? Just, there's more to this book that was ripped out, unfortunately, we don't have. But then there is the reason as to why he had to hide. Kifa and the other Talmudim were being falsely accused of a plot which entailed setting fire to the temple. They were projecting. Yes, you heard me right, projecting. In, a slightly more, in slightly more technical terms, psychological projection is a defense mechanism of alerting uh, uh, alterity concerning inside content mistaking to be coming from the outside other. Slightly simplified, it is taking your own thoughts, emotions, or desires and misappropriating it in, in somebody else rather than yourself. And it happens all the time. I didn't intend this to be couch therapy, but sometimes shrink issues cannot be avoided. What I'm about to tell you is something which you are unlikely to hear anywhere else, certainly not from the pulpit. The perishing were willing to light a match if it meant taking out their competition. And in fact, I suspect they not only conspired to do so, but ensured that their plans were executed. It was most definitely already on their mind during the Passion Week, and they were blaming Yahusha and company for it. This comes from the books of the Book of the Nazarene, chapter 21. Then Yaakov left, for he received word that the Talmudim were being sought, it being feared they would set fire to the great temple. There's another great, amazing connection between books of the Nazarene being written by Aristobulus, Kepha's father-in-law, and Kepha. They both agree on so many points. It's, it's incredible. Uh, telling us that there was a couple of close connections between these two books. Uh, let me say that again. It being feared they would set fire to the great temple or arouse the people so there was a revolt. There had been disturbances in the city because of Barabbas. Only three were killed. So now you know why Barabbas was in chains, because he started a revolt, three people were killed, and uh, the Romans actually captured him that time. I found yet another passage which confirms the burn the temple down accusation started by somebody at the Jewish rumor mill. What we have before us is a second witness. Can't say the Bezora Kifa is the only one to make the claim anymore. False accusation is no small crime in the Torah, carrying with it severe results. Of course, the ninth of the ten, ten Commandments states, you shall not give false witness against your neighbor. But then realize there are 613 commands in the Torah, each of which expands upon the ten. One such command in uh, Devarim, that would be Deuteronomy, does just that with the sin of perjury. And this is what we read in chapter 19. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him, that which is wrong. 
then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before Yahuwah, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as ye had thought to have done until his brother. So shall you put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And your eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Falsely testifying upon one's brother produces a necessary cause and effect action. It's almost like a boomerang. The energy thrust upon the innocent person is returned back upon the originator, inflicting the same damage to the slander intended on the victim. Spiritually, eternally thinking, uh, speaking. If you think about it, the Olivet Discourse was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yahushua made the prediction in Matthew 24 that not one stone would remain, among other provocative claims, like destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. And in turn, the Yahudim accused Yahushua and his Talmudim of plotting to torch it. They used these false claims as cause to murder Mashiach and probably would, would have handed his Talmudim down had it not been for the resurrection. In turn, a divine council in heaven determined that the temple would go up in smoke, precisely as Yahushua's accusers falsely claimed of him. Some of you might claim I am falsely accusing the, the Pharisees and asserting the projection claim. I may not be a psychiatrist, but one thing I am most certainly exempt from is making stuff up. All I'm doing is discovering documents like Kifa and Nazarene, which happen to complement each other, and then reading them off to an audience. And now, what I suppose I shall have to do is show you further documentation, which backs up my opinion on why I believe the Parashim were responsible for the temple's destruction. You probably never heard this anywhere else. It's not like I haven't done that already with the Herod dynasty. Remember Berenice? Yeah, well, the Parashim had their part to play. So remember now, Berenice, who was a Herod, actually financed, she financed the destruction of the temple. All right, so let's not overlook that fact. We know that she helped finance Titus. After the uh, the death of, uh, of what's his name, little Napoleon, Nero. He was a little Napoleon, I think. You know, like Apollyon, right? The mud flood happens, not Apollyon. Anyways, whatever. We'll talk about that another time. Another claim floating around on the internet is that I am really the Pharisee in the story. I've seen those claims. We, yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley, a Pharisee. We found him out. He's really a Pharisee, the responsible party. Though they will usually call me a, a Judaizer, which is the same thing, LOL. Some of you are too funny, but really, I didn't think it would come to this. You found me out. I was caught. And it's true, all of it. I pursued Torah obedience. There were rumors afloat, but now you've heard it here straight from the horse's mouth. Must be a Pharisee then. I can't seem to go anywhere on social media without card-carrying license to sin, Christians throwing Yahushua's rebukes downwind, apparently to reveal, reveal the error of my ways. You see, the logic is, if Yahushua rebuked the Pharisees, and I seek to obey Torah, there it is again, 
then I must be the Pharisee whom Yahushua rebukes. Oh dear, I'm, I must be the one not reading my Bible. Let me see if I got this right. Yahushua rebuked the Pharisees for being works-based and keeping the law while praising the Goyim for being disobedience. Does that just about sum it up? Worst deductive argument ever, but that's the one I'm constantly given. But for the moment, let's roll with the punches and go with it. Rather than simply taking your word for it, or my own for that matter, we'll turn to Bezorah Matathyahu to see why Yahushua rebuked the Pharisees. As usual, I'll present the passage, pausing only for comment. Let's get straight to it then. And we see here in uh, Bezorah Matthew, Matathyahu, then the scribes and Perishim from Yerushalayim drew near to him and they said, why do your Talmudim transgress the, uh, is that the Tikkunim of the ancient ones? Uh-oh, the scribes and Pharisees are arriving from Yerushalayim to draw near to Yahusha, probably up to no good. Some of you were just aching to bring up the word Talmudim and how it is not in your Bible. Why am I promoting the Talmud? Quite the opposite. In fact, before this section is over, you'll, you shall see how anyone who promotes disobedience to Torah is in fact the author of their own Talmud. I probably should have explained before we began, we're once again reading from the Hebrew Gospel of Yahu, which predates the Greek. If this sounds suspicious to you, then I suggest you read along with the Texas Receptus. Oh, fine. How about I just do it for you? I've lined the Hebrew and the Greek Gospel up side by side, starting from the top. We see the Hebrew, and then I'll, I'll read from the, uh, the Greek. It says, why do the disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? This is the, the Pharisees asking this question. Crisis resolved. Talmudim is just a Hebrew word for student or disciple. Every Pythagoras had disciples. Socrates had disciples. Plato had disciples. Aristotle had disciples. I watched the Oliver Stone movie, Alexander, and most of Aristotle's Talmudim were gay. But then again, everybody here mentioned, <laughs> I can't believe I put that in there. I did watch that movie. They were like, all gay. It said, everyone was gay in that movie. But then again, except for Alexander's mother, she was the only one that wasn't gay. But then again, everybody here mentioned derived from the mystery religions and secret societies. Therefore, there are good Talmudim and there are bad Talmudim. We should choose to be a good Talmudim. But then how can we discern the good from the bad? Certainly Yahushua would know. You will immediately tell me the Pharisees are protesting Yahushua on the basis that his disciples are transgressing Torah and that Yahushua is okay with it, just as he is okay with your transgressing it and vice versa, apparently. If there's anything Yahushua loves to do, it's open a can of whoop-ass against the workspace religious people while loving the methods of the sinner, apparently. The word... Uh, Tekinim, however, simply means a man-made regulation, amendment, or improvement to the Torah, something which is not a part of the original commandment of Yahuwah. Therefore, the Pharisees cannot possibly be protesting Yahushua for disobeying Torah, as clearly they're protesting him for obeying it rather than their own man-made law. And we see here again in Matthew, why do they not richly wash their hands when they want to eat? I can't find that command anywhere in the Torah, can you? Must be one of those improvements to the Bible then, continuing. We see in Matthew 15, 3. But he answered them and said, and why do you transgress the commandments of El, um, 
of L on account of your decrees. Or in the, the Greek, the Texas Receptus, it says, why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? In either version, it kind of sounds like Yahushua is rebuking the perishing for transgressing the commandments of Elohim to me. Why are they transgressing the law exactly? Yahushua doesn't leave us hanging because they have their own tradition, which says to do otherwise. Hmm, sounds familiar. There's a whole lot of traditions in the Catholic and Christian church, which advocates an improvement to and freedom from Torah obedience, from the commands of, of uh, Elohim. But that's probably just a coincidence, I'm sure. I'm sure it has nothing to do with, the, with his rebuking the Pharisees. We're doing the same thing. Surely, Yahushua couldn't possibly be addressing anybody else who advocates the same message as the perishing today. Hmm. Perhaps I'm reading this all wrong. So let's just keep going at it. Let me read again in Masathiyahu 15.3. Did not El say, honor your father and your mother, and whosoever curses his father and his mother, that he must die? But you say that any man may say to his father and his mother, anything profitable that I or you may have, it is a free will offering. And so he does not honor his father and his mother. You yourselves transgress the commandments of Yahuwah on account of your evil ordinances. There it is again. The Pharisees are transgressing the commandments of Yahuwah, even going so far as to make them of no effect by their tradition. Seems like I'm picking up a pattern here. Wasn't that a song on Fiddler on the Roof? I'm not going to sing it. You guys know tradition, tradition, tradition. How can anyone claim Yahushua was scolding them for being works-based when you can't very well obey your parents unless a work is involved. Contrarily, disobeying one's parents would make Torah ineffective. Seems legit. I've yet to see a concise deductive argument anywhere except one which has Messiah declaring Torah obedience. Perhaps there will be a surprising twist to this conclusion, so let's just read on. And we read in verse 7 through 9 of chapter 15, Rightly did Yesha Yahu speak about you, saying, This people which honors me with words, but their heart is far from me. They honor me in vain, imposing your instructions and commandments of men. It really doesn't get, uh, or we see here, let me just read the Greek. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Like, I posted a, a meme the other day of, of pastors trying to avoid these statements from Messiah, like Neil, like dodging bullets, you know, up at the pulpit. You know, they, they don't want to address how against Yahushua HaMashiach is against the commandments of men. It really doesn't get any clearer than that. If it is our goal to worship Elohim in vain, then Yahushua tells us how to go about doing it. Listen carefully. Teach for doctrines the commandments of men. Oh no, he doesn't leave us a third option, does he? So far, I have only read two options. There is the Torah of Elohim or the traditions, the doctrines of men. Take your pick, one or the other, but you can't have both. You can devote your entire life to worshiping Jesus while snubbing Torah and think he will be okay with that. But Mashiach says otherwise. Here is a passage which Yahushua was quoting from. This comes from Isaiah, Yeshayahu. And it says, 
Wherefore, Yahuwah said, for as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. So this is this is going on way before the Pharisees. I mean, this is going back to time before time. Therefore, behold, I so doing away with the Torah, right? You know, Jesus came to do away with the law. That's not a new doctrine, right? That could, that Christians make it out like it's new. It's not new. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among the peace, this people, even a marvelous work and wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Wowzers. Yahushua fell in agreement with the Torah-observant prophet Yahshayahu, who in turn fell in agreement with Yahuwah Elohim. Apparently, Yahushua didn't come to undo his father's work after all. Go figure. It says right here, what will happen to those who honor Yahuwah with their lips will obstinately cling to the traditions of men. Wisdom shall perish and understanding will be hidden from them. That's not good. That sounds like the people we talk to about this. You know, we, we try to tell them this and there's just, they're, they're, they cling to the traditions of men and they have, there's no wisdom coming from, like, they think that we're just off our rocker, but we're looking at them going, I don't see any wisdom here at all. Like they, they just, they're not getting it. Their eyes are shut, closed. If you still find yourself in disagreement, then I encourage you to read that again, over and over again if you have to. Fight the indoctrination, hundreds and thousands of years of man-made doctrine and church tradition. Tradition, 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 both on the Jewish side and the Christian side. Take your pick. Mashiach is one thing and your church pastor and the Christian university as well as the seminary and billions of Christians and Catholics worldwide, including the cast, the fiddler on the roof, says another. Think. Whatever happens, don't let cognitive dissonance win the day. Your journey down the narrow path depends upon it. Perhaps this is all just a fluke. Maybe I'm selectively choosing scripture, which only happens to advocate for Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living, you tell me. A Pharisee is still defined as a works-based Torah observant individual. No matter what this particular passage has to say on the matter, fine. Then let's find another confrontation between Yahushua and the Pharisees. A second witness, if you will. The same story can be found in the Gospel of Mark or Marcus. This time, I'll let you read through the entire narrative without breaking for comments. All right. This will take another drink of coffee. This comes from the Gospel of Marcus, chapter 7. Actually, the Hebrew Gospel of Marcus. And then there came to Yahushua some of the Perishim and the wise ones of the old law of the Torah, who came from Yerushalayim. And when they saw some of his Talmudim eating without ritually washing hands, again, I showed you that that command is not in the Torah, they despised them. For the Yahudim do not eat unless they always wash their hands ritually according to the decree of the ancient ones. Also, there are many other statutes that they command them to keep, that is, to richly wash their lids and silver drinking vessels. And because of this, they asked Yahushua, saying, Why are your Talmudim not keeping the decrees of the ancient fathers, but eat bread with richly unwashed hands all the day? So Yahushua answered, saying to them, Well, did Yahshayahu prophesy of you deceit? Actually, this is Yahshayah. Uh, prophesy of you deceiver saying this people honor me by word but their heart is far from me in vain do they honor me teaching the instruction and commandments of men so they forsake the commandments of el 
while holding onto whatever was delivered of men and came to them concerning cups and the silver drinking vessels and likewise many other things. And these, and like these words, he said to them, ye are breaking the commandments of Yahuwah in order to keep your own institutions. It's in the, the red letters right there. For Moshe said, honor your father and your mother and whoso curses his father or his mother must certainly die. But you say that anything, anything of them which a man vows because he made a vow, his father and mother should not profit him. And afterwards, you do not allow him to repay the father and mother. Thus, you are breaking the commandments of Yahuwah on account of your institutions, which you obtain, and many other evils you do. In conclusion, a Pharisee is someone who obstinately breaks the commands of Elohim and teaches others to do the same in order to honor Elohim by their own man-made traditions. I probably should have mentioned this earlier. The very word perishim derives from both the Hebrew and the Aramaic parushi and means one who is separated. What were they separated from exactly? I'm glad you asked. The goyim were icky, but then so were the yahudim who bowed out of their religious practices. And if you've ever taken the time to read Galatians or Romans, the converts were especially icky telling us that they separate themselves from just about everyone and everything imaginable. Like the, their Pharisees were just despised all the people that were coming in uh, via the good news of Yahusha HaMashiach. You can easily see the battle between Yahusha and the Parashim emerge, though I haven't even gotten to the full of it yet. And now for a word from our commercial sponsor. So this is a clipping right here from the wiki Wikipedia article I was telling you about earlier. Uh, let me just read it. Within Judaism, there are a variety of religious movements, most of which emerge from rabbinic Judaism, which holds that God revealed his laws and commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai in the form of both the written and oral Torah. Historically, all or part of this assertion was challenged by various groups such as the Sadducees and Hellenistic Judaism during the second temple all right did you get all of that i have finally turned to the wikipedia article on judaism and there's the link to it right there the script writers of our realm openly admit that judaism emerged from the rabbis those would be the parashim as well as pause quote-unquote judaizers judaism holds that elohim so when when paul referred to them as judaizers he's he's talking to the perishing, the Pharisees who are bringing people into Judaism, right? The Torah is not Judaism. I just read to you here, the Torah, I mean, Judaism is the oral tradition of the, the Babylonian Talmud. The Judaism holds that Elohim revealed his laws and commandments to Moshe on Sinai in the form of both the written and oral Torah. We have already covered that facet of the perishing sect in the Gospels, but I wanted you to see it directly from the horse's mouth, the people writing this literature, right, the, the Zionists. Also, I just realized something. Paul was a Pharisee, and he received his spoken word from Mashiach on Sinai even after his conversion. Uh-oh. I mean, oops. Or perhaps I should simply leave the reader with an inquisitive, hmm, and then leave it at that. Just had to throw that out there. Uh, getting back, I'm throwing a, 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 I guess a bone out to all of my readers who aren't a huge fan of Paul. Getting back to the confession, though, 
Wiki further admits that rabbinical authority was challenged by the Sadducees during the Second Temple period, among other written Torah-only competitor groups, once more telling us that the right side of his story did not win the day. The Roman historian Yosef ben Matatyahu, whom we all know as Josephus, not only acknowledges the claim to the perishing, but then confirms the reason why the two did not get along. And this is what he says in, in Antiquities, chapter, uh, I guess that's 13 or, or, yeah, verse 297. What I would now explain is this, that the perishim have passed on to the people a great many observances handed down by their fathers, which are not written down in the Torah of Moshe. So there it is right there. For this reason, the Sadducees reject them and say that we are to consider to be obligatory only these observances which are in the written word. Something tells me I would have a lot in common with the Sadducees, but need not observe those which are derived from the tradition of our forefathers. So we cannot say that the Sadducees are Judaism. They come from a completely different religion. The Parashim are Judaism. I mean, Josephus is laying it out there what Judaism is, the Judaizers. I'm not sure there's a clearer, no more concise confession out there than what Yosef ben Matayahu has offered us. The Sadducees may not be an innocent offender in the murder of Mashiach, but for once I agree with them. We are under no obligation whatsoever to observe anything other than what is given to us by Yahuwah Elohim in the written Torah. Judaism says otherwise, but then again on the flip of that coin, so does the bulk of Christianity. We ought to guard everything which he commands us, being especially cautious not to subtract from or add to a single pen stroke, not an oral word, but a single pen stroke, the, the jots and the tittles of the law. I will remind you what made the perishing sect so inherently wicked again and again, if need be. They sought to undermine the Torah and do away with it, really. Understand, it wasn't simply a system of oppression which the perishim executed upon the temple priest. They quite literally wrestled priestly authority away from the Levites, making them wicked as hell. Here are some of the observations put forward by the Israeli-born author uh, Eton Barr. And he says in his book, Rabbinic Judaism Debunked, he says, in one instance, they deliberately defiled a certain priest, and he's talking about the Pharisees, so he could no longer bring sacrifices. That's messed up. In another instance, they ordered a stoning of a priest who dared to go against their teachings. So if you think it's only Yahushua HaMashiach who they're, they're crucifying here, they're, they're, they're offing anybody who opposes their teachings. One priest is even recorded saying that even though they, the Sadducees, had responsibility over the temple, they still feared the Pharisees. Indeed, the Pharisees rejected and dismissed many of the procedures under which the Sadducees operated and enforced new traditions to which the priests would have to be subject. So even though the Sadducees disagreed with them, they were so afraid of the Pharisees for being killed by these guys or tormented or whatever. They were like, okay, fine, we'll go along with you on some of this stuff. They had no choice. Well, I shouldn't say they had no choice, but they, they thought they had no choice. And in reality, we always have a choice. What surprised me in all of this is how open the information truly is. The Jews may run the media, but they are completely unashamed in Judaism's origin story, apparently. Like, they're not ashamed of this. They're just very, they'll give you this information. They haven't tried to cover this up. 
not KPC at all. When as you know it, the perishing have their own wiki page, and it's straight up shocking to say the least. It goes on and on about the tug of war between the perishing and the Sadducees. But then get this. Josephus has the perishing calling upon Pompey to bring a resolution to their, to their conflict. Crikey. I have taken the scissors out on this one so that our Zionist controllers cannot play the gaslighting game with me as they have in the past. Read it for yourself. So let's see if I can read this. My eyes are getting a little fuzzy this late at night. According to Josephus, the Pharisees appeared before Pompey asking him to interfere and restore the old priesthood while abolishing the royalty of the Hasmoneans altogether. Pharisees also opened Jerusalem's gates to the Romans and actively supported them against the Sad, uh, Sadducean faction. So the Romans, I mean, the, the Pharisees are the ones inviting the Romans in to begin with. The oppressors that, you know, they would go and turn and look at these oppressors. They were the ones bringing them in and actively support. Okay, when the Romans finally broke the entrance to Jerusalem's temple, they killed the priests who were officiating the temple services on Saturday. They regarded Pompey's defilement of the temple in Jerusalem as a divine punishment of Sadducean misrule. Pompey ended the monarchy in 63 BCE and named um, her... Canis or Hersanus, the second high priest, and Ethnarch, a lesser title than king, uh, six years. Okay, and so it goes on. Recall your 11th uh, grade world history. Pompey was a member of the senatorial nobility and an earth moving general. Though he made a, uh, a political ally of Julius Caesar before they became enemies, his role in the transformation of Rome from republic to empire was a significant, significant one and undisputed. And so continuing with our his story lesson, the Parashim invited Pompey to Yerushalayim, imploring that he conquer it on their behalf. After, that, of course, always comes with a cost, doesn't it? After the Romans broke into the temple and slaughtered the priests making sacrifices on a Sabbath day, the Parashim regarded the defilement as divine punishment for Sadducean misrule. Why were they misruling? Because they refused to keep to their oral traditions. The Sadducees were uh, keeping to the, the written Torah, and this was unjust for them. It was proof that they deserved to die. Think about that. Think about that. If you need this spilled out for you, the Roman oppression, which the Yahudim enjoyed during Yahushua's lifetime, was brought on by their temple controllers. This is not nearly all of it, though. Keep reading. Uh, Pompey ended, okay, uh, let's see, six years later, uh, Hyrcanus was deprived of the remainder of political authority and ultimate jurisdiction was given to uh, pro the uh, proconsul of Syria who ruled through uh, the uh, I do, do main, main uh, that's the Edomites, associate Antipater and later Antipater's two sons uh, received Herod as one of them. And uh, so in 40 BC, Aristobulus's son, Antigonus, overthrew Hyrcanus and named himself king and high priest, and Herod fled to Rome. All right. So Hyrcanus II was installed by Pompey as a local ethnarch, a lesser title than king, only to have him replaced six years later by his uh, Idumian associate Antipater. And there is that word again. Uh, Antipater was an Edomite. Follow the genetic choo-choo train, and Antipater had two sons. Uh, one of which was Herod. There is more to the story, particularly since Herod fled to Rome to pucker up 
on Mark Antony and Octavian's plush pine cheeks, and then Cleopatra's. But we know how the story ends. Yahusha HaMashiach was nailed to the Tav, and Herod Antipas, as alongside his perishing handlers, were responsible for ordering the kill shot. We've just come around full circle. You're welcome. The perishing were working behind the scenes to make stuff happen. Everything and all of it, the defense rest. And then you see an edit here. In the decades before their success with Pompeii, Josephus has the Parashim in a political rivalry with King Alexander Yanni. After inviting a Slovakian king to take his place, some 800 members of the Parashim political power were crucified. Admit it, some of you were skeptical as to their ability to crucify Yahusha. Oh, they were knowledgeable, all right. And anyways, they knew how to do it because at one point, 800 of them were crucified. And anyways, the mother of Hyrcanus II was Queen Shalom Zion, whom many simply know as Alexandra. Rabbinical sources designate the rabbi Simeon ben Shitak as her brother, and by rabbi, I mean to imply Pharisee. According to Josephus, Queen Alexander handed the priesthood over to Hyrcanus II and the legal system over to the parashim. It is she who enabled the parashim to expand their influence, even to the point that they began imposing their teaching on those who, who imposed them. Furthermore, when Hyrcanus II was planted upon the Yehudan throne, he fought his younger brother, Aristobulus II in 73 BC, over the matter of the Yehudan high priesthood. Who do you suppose was pulling the strings in all of this? Now, without getting too much into my 78D paper, and most of you here are probably pretty familiar with it, I will offer another refresher as to Josephus's connections and my thought on the matter. You don't emerge as the only sole survivor of a cave in Galilee after a bloody battle against Rome and become the emperor's right-hand man, which is precisely Josephus's amazing accomplishments. That doesn't just happen. And you could say it's spook. Why would the, the Yahudim even commit mass suicide? That doesn't make any sense. They were fighting the invaders down to the last man. What is this, Jonestown? Are we expected to believe that Josephus passed around the Kool-Aid via loudspeaker announcement? Time again, Josephus unravels for us a series of unfortunate events, all of which happened to land in his favor, but he was also intel, and I'm labeling the cave story a hoax until somebody can prove otherwise. Now, important in all of this is is that Josephus was a member of the Parashim sect. He was furthermore a Flavian, albeit adopted. And the Flavians, as you know, were responsible for the destruction of Yerushalayim. The Parashim agenda couldn't be made any more obvious than it is what is recorded for us in the Talmud. And this comes from a book called Gitin 56b, which says, take Yerushalayim, but give me Yavni and its scholars. I am handing you a paraphrase, though the gist of the argument seems to be confirmed. The person doing the speaking is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who I mentioned earlier, whereas the individual he is speaking to is Vespasian of the Flavian dynasty. You don't have to read between the lines to see a deal being struck. Rome and Judaism have long worked together, a partnership which includes the destruction of Yerushalayim. Isn't it interesting that the political, legal, and, and uh, religious control over the Sanhedrin, or the religion's control over the Sanhedrin, was finally made possible, and in fact fully manifested, with the burning of the temple in 70 AD? 
it's all a coincidence, I'm sure, and probably none of my business. And, and nearly everybody in the Zionist-approved eschatological end times department wonders why Judaism is so hesitant to build a third temple, as if they're awaiting oral instructions from Yahuwah, TNTL. A pr proof is in the pudding that they don't want the Sanhedrin calling the shots again. A third temple will very likely command that the oral law becomes second fiddle to the written Torah once again, that is, if the Sanhedrin have it their way. With the destruction of Herod's temple, the perishing were a success in so much that a new religion was instituted via the Talmud. It shouldn't take a connected dot specialist to see that, nor to recognize the projection being thrusted upon Kifa and the other Talmudim, meaning they were the ones that intended to burn down the temple all along. And they were pushing that onto Yahusha. Posted it. I had nearly forgotten. Josephus claims there were 6,000 souls which made up the ranks of the Parashim during the temple's final generation. There is that magic number again. All right, I'm going to I'm going to end there tonight, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Um, and yeah, so we can go to the other room and discuss it in the general voice chat. So I'll say for the recording, of course, we won't be recording over there. So Shabbat Shalom one last time, and of course uh, we'll continue this next week and the week after until we are finished. With Bazora Kifa, I have so much more I want to say. And um, yeah, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. <laughs>